Uh, we are, uh, once again, we're involved in studying foundations too, defending the faith, uh, learning why we believe what we believe, and then learning how to defend it, hopefully. We have uh, gone all the way through the book. We're in, we've gone through um, the appendix of appendices of evolution and looked at that evolutionary theory in more detail. And then we moved into cults, and we took some selected cults. And one of the things you find about a cult is that they normally deny who Jesus is. They really have another Jesus. They'll deny the Trinity, any number of things that they will um, tear apart. And it's usually a charismatic leader that claims special revelation on things. And so that's frequently the, the markers of a cult. The world religions, though, are a lot more detailed than the cults have become. The cults have got some pretty detailed uh, uh, data or uh, what they would their theology, if you will. The world, world religions been working on these things for a long time, for thousands of years. And so we're trying to look at part of what some of them believe. Now, oftentimes when we do this, we get kind of the big head if we think we know more. Uh, than somebody else does and what we need to use this information for is to be able to witness to people when we run into them uh, to know what they believe and and then be able hopefully to ask them uh, questions gently correcting those who are in opposition so they may escape escape the snare of the devil we, we should learn to do those things and that's um, uh, that's what we've got in mind so when we're looking through some of these things we uh, uh, that's what we want to know. What do they believe? Why do they believe it? Where are they coming from? And then pray that if you run into somebody like this, that the Holy Spirit will give you the right words and the right tone in your message whenever you uh, gently correct. That's, that's the whole objective. So before we begin, let's take a few moments for prayer. It's always important to get ourselves ready to study the Word of God because we're looking at some of the we're looking at the anti-theistic theories. We are looking at religion, which is about uh, function uh, or about form rather than function, and we want to know what the right functions are, and then uh, be able to adapt the forms to fit them to any culture. So let's take this time for prayer and uh, present ourselves before the throne. Let us pray. <clears throat> Father, again, we're thankful for your for your blessings, for your test, for your opportunities. Father, thank you just for your amazing word because we know we have a standard that we can always go to and test our thoughts and our attitudes, the thoughts and intents of the heart against what you have to say. So, Father, I pray that as we do that, that's what will constantly be done in our own souls. And, Father, that we will be able to learn in order to be able to minister to other peoples. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we have been looking at Judaism. The first thing we looked at was Islam. And we took a look at the, just an overview of their religion. Uh, there's a whole lot of interesting contrast between Islam and Judaism and Christianity and uh, everybody says they're all different they're not the same 
And then you have some people trying to put these things together and say that really Islam and uh, Judaism and Christianity all worship the same God, and uh, that's not the case. Islam will tell you real fast that they don't worship the God of the Jews and nor of the Christians. So we need to know who our God is. First of all, we need to study the truth and not spend so much time on the counterfeits. We don't know the truth. Because if we know the truth, we can see the counterfeit. And that's just the, that's the way it works in, in any regard. So what we started looking at was Judaism. And why classify this as a world religion? And part of the fact is that it didn't start as a religion, but it became that. Uh, religions are based mostly on rituals. And they are based on forms rather than functions. Under the Mosaic Law you'll find that there were a lot of forms prescribed under the Mosaic Law. They had certain ways to do their uh, offerings. They had certain ways to, to prepare their sacrifices. They had certain times of the year they were to come up to Jerusalem. They had certain ways, if you were part of the priesthood, Levitical priesthood, that when you walked into the outer court, you were to do certain things to go to the, the uh, uh, burnt altar. You were to go to the uh, bronze laver if you had drawn the card, I guess, to go into the tabernacle itself. And once you got in the tabernacle, there were certain procedures that you were to go through and follow those exactly. Those were great tests of obedience, and they were there for a very important reason. But part of the reason that they were there is that the Lord was showing them that they needed a Messiah because no matter how hard they tried, they kept messing up. I mean, it's kind of like the rest of us, isn't it? What better way to think you and realize you need a Messiah than to keep messing up? But if you have a culture or society that says there are no mess-ups, then why do you need a Messiah? And that's part of the devil's attack and part of his plan. So the Jews became very ritualistic and very legalistic along the way. And they began to think, to think that these rituals are what actually saved you. Now, we worship the same God, but we have a, a different view of him, actually. And so in some regards, he's not really even the same God as, as traditional Judaism has today. It's where it started, because we came from the line of Abraham. We, the uh, first part of the church, the earliest converts into the church were all Jews. Uh, the Messiah was the Messiah to the Jews, but not to the Jews only, also to the Gentiles. And the Jews didn't like that. They were, they were honestly very selfish. They were very self-focused and self-centered, and they didn't particularly want to share their Messiah, and they certainly didn't want to share the power with him because they had, uh, they had grabbed for the power, the first century uh, priesthood, they had grabbed for the power and they got it and did not want to relinquish it. Even Pilate um, <laughs> said he knew it was because of envy that they delivered him up. What's that? He, he was gaining a following and they had to force people. They had to force sheep into the pens and he just, he called and they came and they just couldn't stand that. Same thing happened with John the Baptist, people were going to him in the wilderness because he had a message of, of salvation and hope and truth and peace, and that's, that's what they were looking for. But instead, the Jews decided they would stick with their rituals, and you could see it as their doctrine developed over the centuries 
and we went through their statement of faith last week as to what they what they believe, and you'll find out that a lot of times this this statement of faith is more we're, we are not Christians in any way, shape, or form. And if you look at it carefully, it's in the back of your book there. You look at it carefully, that's basically what they're saying. We're not Christians. We do not believe in a trinity. We do not believe that uh, God can become flesh. We do not believe any of those things. So when you go through this, they're basically saying we are not Christians at all. Now, what are they left with? Well, their doctrine of the Messiah, we looked uh, also last week at the Holy Days. Uh, We looked at the three branches of Judaism, uh, the Orthodox, Conservative, and the Reformed. And we looked uh, at the doctrine of the Messiah. Now, this is where their doctrinal statement is, and it was uh, uh, written down, put together by the rabbis over the course of centuries. This pretty well came to be a standard uh, doctrinal statement. Now, the meaning for Messiah has undergone many changes during Jewish history. Now, I think if you go back, as far as you want to go back, you go back to Job, for example, in chapter 19, verse 25, he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and at the last he shall take his stand upon the earth. And see, Job knew he needed a spiritual Redeemer, right? He was a wealthy man. He was uh, covered in sores at that point in time. It, he knew that there was something personal that he needed in order to exist. Now, originally, they believed God would send his special messenger. This is the, this is the man like, like Elijah that would come along. Elijah would return, and he would come back, and he'd send his special messenger. But his job was to deliver Israel from her oppressors and institute peace and freedom. They had a dichotomy. They had a a theological um, tension that they fought over, they argued over, they couldn't quite figure it out because they wanted a Messiah that would come and throw off all of the oppressors of Israel and there was always a lot of them throughout all of history. And they wanted a Messiah, they wanted a judge. You know, and the judges ruled there was... The land had peace for so many years. And then that judge died and here came another invading group or something like that. And so that's the type of Messiah that they were looking for. They were looking for a man but not a God-man. They were looking for someone to deliver them politically, economically, socially, but not spiritually. Because they thought that their rituals, the blood of bulls and goats, could give them the redemption they needed to get into eternity. Now today, any type of personal Messiah has been all but abandoned. It's been substituted with the hope of a Messianic age characterized by truth and justice. Now if you wanted to pull Jesus out of the middle of history and you just were reading the Bible and you threw out verses like the Lord said to my Lord, Lord sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. How can David call him Lord and he be David's son? He has to be God and man at the same time. They throw out Isaiah 9, 6. A child shall be born to us. He shall be called mighty mighty God, eternal Father. He's God and man. And they didn't want to to do anything with that. Isaiah 53 talks about the suffering servant. But what they saw was Isaiah 60 to 66, which was millennial kingdom and the conquering Messiah. And they they could not make the distinction between one who would deliver them from their sins and one who would deliver them from all their enemies. 
They couldn't figure it out. And to them, they thought they had the sin problem covered themselves with the blood of bulls and goats. And what they needed was a what they needed was a shepherd that would lay down his life for the sheep. That's what they needed. And that's what they that's what they missed. They're looking for the millennial kingdom without the uh, spiritual Messiah. From the time of, of Jesus till Moses Saim Lozato, who died in 1747, there have been at least 34 different prominent Jews who have claimed to be the Messiah. Haman is back there in the flesh, and didn't Jesus prophesy of that in the Olivet Discourse we just got got finished studying that uh, you know there will be false Christ, false Messiah, they will arise and they'll say, hey, he's over here, and don't go over there. These... Uh, Self-proclaimed messiahs, and that's one of the things they did, promised salvation from political issues, social, economic, those type of things. And probably, since the Jews have been, uh, people have been so biased and prejudiced against the Jews, uh, how far do you want to go back? I mean, how about Ishmael with um, uh, mocking Isaac back in the see Isaac live from I'll get it in a minute 1850 to 1775 1850 along about 1845 when he's five years old Abraham had had a had a half Egyptian child by the name of Ishmael and he was mocking uh, Isaac so that oppression started way back during the time of the life of Abraham now. <clears throat> The doctrine of God. How do they view God? Now, the concept of the orthodox branch of Judaism is based on the Old Testament. And it's not at odds with Christianity. We basically see that. They didn't see the Trinity. We're able to look and go back and see the Trinity uh, easily with Jehovah, with Elohim, some of the other titles that we have. Some of the... We have the... We have the luxury of looking backwards at history and, and uh, being able to figure it out. But it's not at odds, really, with Christianity. The conservative branch uh, holds to basically the same idea as the Orthodox, so we're in pretty good shape right there. But the Reform group likes to view God as more of an influence than a personal God who is patient with his people. Now, what, is, what does a statement like that tell you? It's kind of like Satan is not a being. Satan is just a worldview. A personification of evil. He doesn't really exist. And that's the same type of thing. The Reformed is the liberal group of Judaism. And um, they, you know, they don't think that... Um, they don't think that... <coughs> that um, uh, he really even exists. It's amazing when we start looking at some of the liberal theologians uh, of what would be called loosely Christianity. I mentioned uh, the group of Unitarians there in Tulsa that they had a pastor who'd been there 20 years and he wasn't even sure God existed. And my old question, why are you trying to pastor a church if you don't even believe there's a God? You know, shouldn't it be the church of Satan? Oh, still, Satan's a god in the church of Satan, isn't he? I mean, he's the one that makes all the decisions. So, this is the reform group, and that's kind of how the they view things. The doctrine of salvation. 
while admitting the existence of sin and its abhorrence by God, so there's no way to read the Old Testament and leave that out, and the necessity for atonement, that's the covering of sins, it had not developed a system of salvation teaching such as found in Christianity. They hadn't figured it out quite to the same degree. Now, if they looked like Paul encouraged them to look, they would see salvation is by grace through faith. And they would go back to Abraham in Genesis 15:6. Abraham believed God and it was imputed to him righteousness. Now, that's how we're saved. We, we can't earn the righteousness of God. We have to be given the righteousness of God. And so that's what happened. Abraham, somewhere along the line, in Genesis 15, Abraham there is, is about, uh, uh, well, Genesis 16 is Ishmael. So 15 is uh, about, Abraham is about 85 years old there because he was 86 when, when Ishmael was born. So he's about 84, 85 years old. And uh, it says, and Abraham had believed, is what it literally says, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. And to me, that's a past tense. It's something that looks back that says, somewhere along the line. Personally, I think he was a believer in Ur of the Chaldees. Because God's not in the habit of calling unbelievers to carry out his will. I think he was already a believer before he was told to leave this land, the land of your relatives, and go to the land that I will show you. I think he was already a believer. So he had believed, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. Now, they admit the existence of sin. But see, they, they don't think sin is a problem because we just offer up a lamb. Oh, and today I feel poor, so I'm going to offer up two turtle doves. I mean, they, they had convenient outs that it was never designed that way, but leave it to people with sinful natures and figure out ways to twist stuff around. That's a worker of iniquity. Atonement is accomplished by sacrifice. That's their doctrine of salvation. Penitence, that means you feel bad for it, feel real sorry for it. That's the, you know, you offer up the sacrifices and you maybe shed a few tears and weep and all that. And then replace that with a whole bunch of good deeds and a little bit of God's grace. (laughs) I've, I've run into a lot of different people over the years and some interesting conversations and some of them God gives you the grace to work for your salvation that's one of them <laughs> and one of them is you just work hard enough and God will give you his grace so that you'll be saved and it's kind of kind of it's an admixture of evil is putting the wrong stuff in there and I, I love Ephesians 2 8 9 for by grace we have been saved through faith That not of ourselves. It is the gift of God and it is not of works. Can't say it any clearer than that. Lest any should boast. Now we are his workmanship. We're created for good works. The difference is we can't work to get saved. We work because we have been saved. We don't even have to work to stay saved. Because it all becomes about his promise and not not us. They don't have any concept of a substitutionary atonement. If you're to go back through the sacrifices and the burnt offering, the uh, peace offering, in particular sin offering and trespass offering, the person that was offering the sacrifice 
one of the ritual actions they were to do was to place their hand on the head of the sacrifice. And that was a picture of imputation. The picture of I'm placing my sins onto this onto this sacrifice. Now, didn't that tell them there was a substitute? But see, we can we can get ourselves so um, can't see the forest for the trees. We can get ourselves so wrapped around the axle, we don't know what's going on. And they they said they didn't see a substitutionary atonement, but yet their own their own offerings taught substitutionary atonement and they should have been able to pick up on that pretty easy I think when the Lord installed this and he gave the information to Moses and he told Moses what this was all about I think Moses knew but you see a problem even in the first generation of priests remember Leviticus 10 and Nadab and Abihu Nadab and Abihu these are the two sons of Aaron and they went out on the first day, very first day, and the Lord told Moses, tell, tell them, teach them, tell them not to do it any different than what I tell you to do it. And they went out and they offered strange fire. Now he told them where to get the fire to start the fire in the bronze, in the bronze altar. He told them where to get the fire. What does it mean when it says strange fire? They took it from the wrong place. They either weren't paying attention or didn't think it mattered. And so what did the Lord do? Call down fire out of heaven and struck them dead right there. Embarrassed the life out of Aaron because those were his sons. And he either didn't teach them well enough or they were rebellious and he didn't do anything about it. There was problems there. But this concept of a substitutionary atonement, that was... Uh, taught very early on. Now a Jew who believes that man is justified by works of the law should hold the belief that man can only demand strict justice from God and ask God to give what is deserved, neither more or less. There's no need for God's mercy, only strict justice. This is part of their doctrine of salvation. So you have to get good enough that you're worthy for salvation in the daily morning prayer they all call for mercy you see the contradiction there they want God to evaluate everybody including them based on a strict standard of justice and yet they call for mercy they don't want to show any mercy to anybody else but when it comes down to it they want it for themselves when the, the, when the Lord Jesus said was in the middle of the Pharisees one time and he said uh, how about this man who calls out over here the Lord have mercy on me a sinner rather than basically the smug people over there that don't think they have any sin which one do you think the Lord hears that's a question he asked the, the Pharisees and um, another question they didn't like because it pointed out their, their errors and their flaws. We find while they do believe in God's mercy, they don't believe that any substitution, substitutionary atonement can once and for all cleanse from sin. Now, think about that one for a while because you have to have then offer up sacrifices for sins over and over and over and over again. 
And hopefully you're familiar with Hebrews, the 10th chapter. As Hebrews chapter 10 talks about, we've been given the law as a shadow of things to come. Beautiful picture. And then it goes on and says, For the priests stand daily offering up sacrifices. By the time of Christ, that had already become an established doctrine in their thinking. That there was no completed substitutionary atonement that once and for all would cleanse from sin. And yet, Hebrews 10 makes it very clear that it would that it does indeed, his offering indeed cleanses from sin. You have to believe in it though. You have to have faith in the one who died, was buried, and rose again. Why did he die? To pay for your sins. I mean, that's that's what it's what it's all about. The doctrine of salvation, according to Judaism today. Now, thankfully, there's Messianic Jews who've come out, and they've there's a lot of different Messianic Jews that have done some some really good work. But they're like a lot of the rest of us. There's a whole lot of different opinions and things floating around out there. I, I find it interesting that uh, I probably mentioned it to you one time. I meant to went to meet a guy in Dallas that was uh, uh, from India, and he. Um, I went down there to show him foundations book and and those different things and and I found his uh, he had a church name Indopak. It kind of caught my attention because India and Pakistan are at odds with each other because India is Hindu and Pakistan is Muslim and it was the Indopak church and I went down there and we set up a time we had lunch and all that and had a good visit and and I said. How about, how many churches are there in the Dallas-Fort Worth area that you that speak Malayalam? Okay, Malayalam or Urdu. How many, how many churches like that that have Indians and Pakistanis in them that are, that are Christians? He said about 80. Now that flabbergasted me, there's just that many churches down there like that. I said, what would be the possibility of getting all the Malayalam-speaking churches together? And I'd love to get them together. We could feed them dinner or something. I could show them what all's in this book, and we'd provide it for them as we could. And he looked at me and he said, it'll never happen. And I said, and it kind of caught me off guard. And he said, there are too many arguments, there are too many factions, there's too much infighting. He said that meeting wouldn't last 15 minutes. And I went, gosh, sounds like a lot of Christians I know. <laughs> you know, it's uh, just just because we're from an, another country, different country, whatever, doesn't mean we've got it, got it all right. Now, <clears throat> the doctrine of original sin, uh, Judaism holds no concept of original sin. And thus, no sense of total depravity and the unworthiness of man. Now, what happens whenever you do away with the sin nature? Well, why do you think Paul went into such detail in, in the book of Romans, in chapter 6 and 7, about original sin? Romans 5, by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin. And so death spread to all men. How, how did, why did Paul do that? Because he knew what Judaism believed. And here, the... They don't have a concept of original sin. So that means that, gosh, those cute little babies that are throwing things across the room, 
get madder than a dickens because mom or dad didn't do what they wanted them to do at the, at the right time, and, and, but they don't have any sin. Until they reach their bat mitzvah or bar mitzvah, where they reach their age of accountability and they go through that, and then they can have sin. Of course, if that was the case, why didn't they just keep putting that off and then they'd never have sin to worry about anyway? But I guess whenever they sin finally, they have a fallen nature. But they don't have a sense of total depravity. And I, I think that is crucial. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Every stinking one of us except one. And that man's name was Jesus. When the Bible makes a universal statement, all have sinned, fallen short of the glory of God. <clears throat> because it has the authority to make a universal statement, only the Bible can make an exception to it. And very clearly, that's what, what happened in the case of, of Jesus. So, they don't start off thinking that they're unworthy. Now, my parents didn't have any problem making me think I was unworthy of anything. And most of the rest of us, we grew up in that same thing. Yeah, we had, yeah, we we got what, we got, I'm not going to say I got what I deserved. I got away with a lot more than than I should have. But anyway... The original sin, Judaism's emphasis is placed on original virtue and righteousness. You can basically lose it. Although acknowledging that man does commit acts of sin. Okay, so there's no inherent sin to be found in mankind. <clears throat> and atonement for sin is achieved by works of righteousness, which include repentance, prayer, and good deeds. Thus, there's no need for a spiritual savior. See the neat little doctrinal statement that they've woven for themselves <clears throat> that is a box that is no good whatsoever. This box has no place in it for, for grace because they're going to work and they're going to earn this salvation. We uh, were in uh, another country one time and, and we were at a, uh, one of their local shrines with the Buddhist shrine and it was um, uh, <clears throat> there was about well, 2,000 Buddhist temples within this one big temple that was there and there was this uh, <laughs> there was this guy over there that, that was uh, there was a little Buddha statue with a water thing kind of like a bird bath and he was sitting there doing this with a water cup over the top of it. And I was with Bob Thompson, and Bob is a character, dangerous to travel with on mission trips because <laughs> he, he had no problem pushing the envelope. He's a lot of fun to, to do it. So, And then when a the guy got done, he dinged the gong. You know, you've heard of ring your own bell. You know where that comes from? Buddhism. <laughs> That's where it comes from. When you do a good deed, you go over there and bang that gong over there. I guess that's, I don't know if that's where the gong show came from or not. But anyway, Bob went over there and he thought, he just <laughs> kind of got that little boy look on his face like, I could do this too. <laughs> he went over there and dumped some and then went over and bong. <laughs> Okay, Bob, let's get out of here before we get tarred and feathered and, and all of that sort of stuff. Anyway, but it's, it's quite a deal if you don't need a spiritual Savior and you don't need somebody besides you. 
you have figured out a way to save yourself. And the sad thing is, that flies in the face of everything you find in the Bible. You cannot save yourself. Now we have a common heritage. This came from Pinchas Lapid, and he was a Jewish scholar. Um, and there are some distinctly common, uh, there's a distinctly common heritage. And that's what we're trying to find here. Uh, is a Jewish author. He says, We Jews and Christians are joined in brotherhood at the deepest level, so deep, in fact, we've overlooked it and missed the forest of brotherhood for the trees of theology. We have an intellectual and spiritual kinship that goes deeper than dogmatism, hermeneutics, and exegesis. We're brothers in a manifold elective affinity, if you will. Those are the big theological words they put in to try and make you think they're smart. Anyway, in one belief, uh, in the belief of one God, in one God our Father. Common belief. In the hope of his salvation. We differ on, the, on how, but we do have the, the hope of his salvation. Uh, there is also the ignorance of his, of his ways. My, you know, his ways are not our ways. My ways are not his ways. They are so far above anything we can think or possibly imagine. Jews and Christians both think that. We realize that we serve a omniscient God and that we can't fully understand him. And that is a, that is a common heritage. We find, stand in humility before his omnipotence because both of us look back and go in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that is a degree of power that we can only imagine. And we can't even imagine it. I think, what, it, what kind of power did it take to put the universe in existence? And what it appears like is it said, well, it says he spoke and brought the heavens into existence. Looks like instantaneously. That's what he did. What kind of power would it take to do that and put it there with an order? with an amazing design. What kind of power and omniscience and all that would it take to do that? So we stand in humility before his omnipotence. Whenever you get out, I haven't been out in the woods in a long time. Jimmy rescued me last time Bradley and I got out in the woods a little too far from the house. But um, when you get out there and it's just you and the stars and no city lights or anything else like that, I mean, you're just struck with with the magnificence of the Almighty. I mean, how can you not be to look up into the sky and see see what he has put together and designed? And that should humble us. Because to, to me, you just realize, I'm short anyway, but it makes me shorter. I mean, it just it's just <laughs> overwhelming and overpowering. And then, and the knowledge that, oh, this is a good one. We belong to him, not he to us. Now, what kind of differential is that? Don't all these little uh, people that worship idols, don't those idols belong to them? They don't belong to the idols. See, this is something vastly different. We belong to him, not he to us. We have a love and a reverence for God. And by admittedly, in both Jews and Christians, at times the reverence is not where it needs to be. And certainly the love is not where it needs to be. But what we have is a common heritage that says, Come on and love me. Seek me with all your heart and you're going to find me. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You shall love your neighbors yourself. So we have this common heritage. 
we have um, uh, in doubt about our wavering fidelity. Sometimes we wonder because we're not always faithful to him. And then you just keep reading the book and reading the book and reading the book and says, if we are faithless in 2 Timothy 2, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. Now that is a profound statement. See, we are human beings with feet of clay and we often make promises we don't keep. God is not that way. When he makes a promise, he keeps it. When he says, you believe in my son, you'll never perish, he keeps it. And to me, that's that's a massive comfort <laughs> to do that. How about in the paradox that we are dust, where do we come from? Out of the dust of the ground, but we're made in the image of God. That's an interesting thought, isn't it? Yeah, this outer shell is going to pass away. But the inner man, it says in 2 Corinthians 5, being renewed day by day. In the consciousness that God wants us as partners in the sanctification of the world. He had a mission for us. He had a mission for Israel. He had a mission for Israel. They were supposed to go and, and teach others and make disciples. They were so small early on that the people would, would come to them. And they were smart. One thing you can... You might not like the Jews, but they were smart. Were they always honest? No. Well, how about the Gentiles? No, they weren't always honest either. But the Jews were businessmen, and they were they uh, they traveled. When we went to the west coast of India one time to Cochin, they had a synagogue there. I mentioned many times that group of Jews came over after the Babylonian captivity. They arrived there in India somewhere between four and five hundred B.C. and set up and established a synagogue right there on the on the uh, west coast of India, and it was still operational and in existence even today. Fascinating to even to even think about. But he wanted them in the sanctification of the world, and and they didn't fulfill their job. They went over and. What, what do you read about what happened to them and Joshua and Judges and Ruth? They went in and they got involved with the idols of the people that they were supposed to conquer. They got involved with following after other gods. What did God warn them against? Don't do that under any circumstances. And he, he wants us to go and make disciples of all the world. That's what he has called us to do. Uh, <clears throat> And the condemnation of arrogant religious chauvinism, which we know is prejudiced. And see, the, the Jews were really supposed to take in the Gentiles. The Gentiles wanted to be a part of Israel. They were welcome. Just go through and read the first five books of the Bible again. They were welcome. What was the difference? They had to follow the rules. If they wanted to become a citizen of Israel, the men had to be circumcised according to the custom of Moses. That was required to do that. They had to follow their laws. They fell under the same laws. They weren't given special treatment or special anything, but they were to be treated equally and they were to be treated fairly. And see, that is where Christians should be. Have Christians always fallen down on the right side of that? And we can honestly say, no, they haven't. 
No, they haven't. But does Christianity teach that all men are created equal? Seems like we read that somewhere in our preamble to the Constitution. We that all men are created equal, endowed by their Creator with certain inalienable rights. We've we've heard that many times. We've been taught that most of us since we were in since we were in grade school. These things are right, and <clears throat> this is a common heritage. The Jews, we didn't always get it right, right? Neither did the Jews. But what did God teach them is the question. We find uh, conviction that that uh, love of God is crippled without love of neighbor. Okay? If we can't learn to love one another, it doesn't mean we let other people get away with absolutely everything. It's not what it's about. But to have that, that love of our neighbor... Hating your neighbor is no good, as we know. And in the knowledge that all speech about God must remain in a stammering um, on our way to Him. That means that we're not as smart as we think we are. That means that the best we can describe Him is incompletely. Now I see in a mirror dimly, Paul writes, but then face to face, now I know in part, then I'll know in full as I have been fully known. That's such a beautiful statement that we cannot describe. Paul was caught up into the third heaven. I can't. He said, I don't really have words to describe what I saw. That's amazing. We who have a lot of words being left speechless and yet realizing that we can't adequately describe him. I find it interesting. Why, do trans, why does there have to be multiple translations of the Bible? over the course of time. That's because words change. And you have to translate them into the culture vernacular of a particular time in history. King James translation, 1611 translation. For 1611, good translation. But whenever you start getting 1611 words into 1911 words or 2011 words, They've taken on different meanings. The meanings have expanded. What you always find with a language is that it starts and it gets concise and then it starts falling apart. And what do we have with the English language? We have a hodgepodge of, of a language made up from all over the world. I mean, think of the different words that we have from the French, from the British. We have words from all over the world. We bring them in and we anglicize them. That's what they call it. And so, <clears throat> when we try to describe God, we do it the best we can do it today. Realizing that it may need to, may need to be... It's not modifying the doctrine, it's modifying the terminology to make it more understandable. Now, some of, some of the author's comments about this is modern Judaism has clearly rejected the Trinity. I'm going to summarize this. Because they don't believe that God can become man. Flesh is not good. And they rejected the Trinity and that Jesus is God in the flesh who paid for the sins of the world. So you pay for your own sins, not one complete uh, sin accomplishment. Instead, they believe salvation is accomplished by the works they do rather than by grace through faith. The book of Galatians gives us God's view of Jews and Gentiles today. Showing that whether a person is a Jew or Gentile, all are pointed to Jesus Christ and are saved by grace through faith. 
Now, <clears throat> Hebrews 10, 10, By this will we have been sanctified through the offering and the blood of Jesus Christ once for all. Every priest ends daily ministering and offering time after time the same sacrifices. See what the writer of Hebrews is saying there? They're the same person can bring the same sacrifice over and over and over and over again. Because they believe that's what saves them, but nothing saves them forever. And Christianity came along and said, you believe in this guy, he'll save you forever. Okay? You shall have eternal life. It says, he says, the same sacrifices which can never take away sins, but he, having offered one sacrifice for sins for all time, sat down at the right hand of God. One sacrifice for sins for all time. To me, that is about as universal a statement as you can get. If there was any payment for sins anywhere, anytime, in history, prehistory, in eternity, that was it on the cross. I see that kind of period over and out. Uh, <clears throat> next week, we won't be here. It's the night for, tis the night before Thanksgiving and all through the house. With the smell of a turkey and dressing. <laughs> so it won't be that week, but the next time we come back, we'll take a look at Roman Catholicism and, and uh, uh, their, the Roman Catholics, again, there's a lot of things that are good. They're just like there is in Judaism. But there's some things that need to be pointed out. Uh, we have about ten minutes. I know this is kind of unusual. Do we have any questions that you would like to ask me? Well, I caught you off guard, Sandra, so... <laughs> well, the, um, what have been your thoughts about um, the studies? A lot of you have been here through all the studies or most of the studies and listened to them. Uh, do they make sense? It's one of the things that I'd like to ask... Could, I, I know they can always be done simpler. I shoot for the simplest way to, to explain anything I can find. It doesn't always come out that way, but that's what I think we should do. Um, well, I guess we'll just call it a night. Let's pray. Father, it's such a blessing to be able to come together with brothers and sisters in the faith, to be able to consider your word father to be able to take a peek and look at at people we know and love because you do father the jewish people you have a special plan for them and father you have a you have a salvation you want them to undergo by faith in your son and father we pray that in these these last days the holy spirit would just overwhelm them with the, the fact that they can't save themselves. No work is going to save them. It's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Only can it be done by your power working through grace and faith. And Father, I pray that message will be made clear. I pray for missionaries that are over there. I pray that 
they will make the gospel message quite clear. I pray they'll do nothing to distract from it by lack of integrity or honor or anything else. But Father, I pray that they will be your witnesses and they will go and make disciples for you. For we ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.